Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast. I am coming to you from Christmas Eve as I prepare to put this whole operation to bed for the year. I have another excellent rerun for you, the second of three that you'll be visited by before we come back next year. First, though, a quick story. A few days before Christmas this year, Amanda and I attended a play about the famed 1914 Christmas truce on the front lines during World War I. The opposing sides stopped fighting, met in no man's land, played soccer, sang carols, and held a joint ceremony to bury their respective dead. However, before the play started, the, you know, approaching retirement age couple sitting ahead of me was discussing fairly loudly the scourge of critical race theory that was taking over the military and how it was obviously just another cover for creeping Marxism, the whole kit and caboodle, which I got a real kick out of hearing this person refer to both Marxism and kit and caboodle in the same sentence. But having heard them talk about this, I, you know, it took me out of the you know, Christmas spirit a little bit, but then got me thinking about the nature of the show that we were about to watch. And I couldn't help but think, sort of distractedly, through the entire play, should I offer for these people, in the spirit of the message we were watching, to give them the opportunity to meet a real-life socialist and supporter of critical race theory, so that we might share some libations and cheer and conversation during this holiday season in the wake of having watched a show about the Nazis and the French and the British getting together to play soccer in the middle of no man's land during a war. I thought maybe they would go for it. Maybe I could uh, you know, change some minds a little bit. And it is to my great regret that I did not actually offer that and let them go about their lives unmolested. Uh, but I, it was mostly because I was looking out for Amanda's well-being. She very much does not enjoy uncomfortable conversations. Like once we were walking down sort of a beach boardwalk and a guy had a massive telescope set up to look at the sun with special filters and everything so that you could look at the sun. He's charging people a buck to look through his telescope. And it was great. You know, it was a really amazing, unbelievably close-up view of the sun. You could see the, you know, the bursts of plasma coming off the side of the sun. But then we got talking to him and he started telling us about how gravity doesn't really exist and it doesn't work the way the scientists want you to think it does. And I thought, this is amazing. I love this. And Amanda thought, this is awful. We have to get out of here. And so I didn't get to talk to him as long as I would have liked to. And that's sort of how I thought it might have gone if I had offered to talk to this slightly older couple about critical race theory. But anyway, now we actually analyze this phenomenon a little bit more as we examine the domestic rancor so extreme, it seems like it would take a 1914 Christmas truce level phenomenon to break through it, hyperpartisanship. But first, 
Don't forget, we're in the middle of our year-end membership drive, so if you haven't yet signed up to support the show, please consider it. We're giving away our best-of-left wallpapers for your phones and tablets just through the end of the year. But the real treat, I must say, is that you get access to all of our bonus episodes, including all of our past bonus episodes, if you want to binge those. We have a lot of fun recording them, which means you're going to have a lot of fun listening to them. So go to bestofleft.com support or tap the button to sign up right inside the Apple Podcast app. And now, hyperpartisanship. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the current state of hyperpartisanship and its origins. The system seems to be broken because it is broken, and it was never designed to work this way in the first place. And then what about the bygone era of bipartisanship we all look back wistfully on? Well, it's likely that was a fluke and the result of one-party dominance in the New Deal era, something that is not likely to be repeated anytime soon, and it is not the norm throughout history. Before we get started, though, another just quick reminder catch everyone up in case you missed it. We are in a break glass in case of emergency financial situation here at the show. We lost our Amazon affiliate funding, which was like losing 400 members all at once, all canceling at the same time. And so we ask you to remember these three things. Memberships are key. That is what we survive on. So just a couple of bucks a month, $6 a month gets you our bonus content and everything like that. Or more. I mean, lots of people have been donating more, and we we cannot thank them enough for doing that. So after losing about 400 members worth and then announcing this, we have so far regained the equivalent of about 250 new members worth with new signups and people increasing their pledges. So if you can become a member and help get us back to sustainability, please do, and we'll thank you forever. Also, we have a new merch store, so obviously there's a bunch of Best of Left merch available, but if you look through to our store and then buy some other design from some other designer anywhere else on the site, we'll actually get a cut of that too. So if you have some like t-shirt shopping to do, maybe check out our store and then have a look around. And then most excitingly, we launched our Referomatic program that you can use to earn rewards just for sharing the show and helping us grow the audience. So the links to all of that are in our show notes. And now onto the show itself with clips today from Professor Buzzkill, The Ezra Klein Show, and The Frame Lab Podcast. The Certainly the first several decades, certainly the first three and a half decades of this fifth party system period after 1933 is dominated dominated by what's called the New Deal Coalition. Okay. And these are Democrats? These are Democrats. Democratic Party. This is a a coalition, sorry, a grouping of groups, a group of voter blocs that comes together under Franklin Roosevelt that is so powerful that it leads to a period of Democratic dominance. And it can't be, you're right, it can't be overturned. Okay. Right. In theory, anyway. Right. At least in, the, at least in Congress. It, well, yeah, and it yeah. turns out to be pretty pretty robust, and you see right. it again. It, it might fade a bit and then come back. It elects a string of Democratic presidents. It's a it's one of the big reasons why the House the House of uh, Representatives is dominated by the Democrats for forty straight years. Yeah, that's between right. nineteen fifty four yeah. and nineteen ninety four. Yeah. There's a reason yeah. they call it the Gingrich Revolution because yeah. the Democrats had this stranglehold on the House. 
the coalition consists of major groups, primary among them organized labor, mm-hmm. which is given new strength under Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, a significant percentage of farmers right. who had traditionally been Republican, mm-hmm. but switched to the Democrats and often stay with the Democrats because of government intervention, things like farm price supports right. Subsidies, and, yeah. and the, the saving of uh, farm mortgages and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. African-Americans yeah. who, because of the Great Migration, have moved north in significant numbers and can vote, and they become yeah. an important voting bloc in the Democratic Party in the 1930s already. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it looked to 1948 when the Democrats officially dragging dragging some Democrats kicking and screaming, but they adopt a civil rights plank in 1948. Yeah, Why right. is that? Yeah. Because the urban bosses have decided that African-American votes are too important to ignore. Yeah. And that you have to make this an issue, even if it means basically alienating millions of white Southerners, mm-hmm. which is exactly what happens in 1948. Uh, Truman, Truman. And, and that, and then that then presumably builds up over time and is helps lead to the Gingrich revolution. Exactly. And other things like exactly helps okay. lead to the Southern strategy. Right, et cetera, right. 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 In other words, that uh, white Southerners are put back in play having been by definition democratic for decades. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then also um, urban immigrants, a lot of relatively recent arrivals, in other words, non-white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Yeah. We might call them hyphenated Americans, yeah. right? They were called uh, them in the, in the teens and 20s. Right. Italian Americans, Greek Americans, um, Polish Americans, mm-hmm. Irish Americans, who often had been felt, uh, they'd felt frozen out of politics or yeah. welcomed into politics and often given, even given government posts in the New Deal. Yes, right. right a lot right, of these right, folks right. are Catholics. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these folks are in the cities. But well, by definition, urban immigrants, in the cities, <laughs> yeah. duh. But they become a much more staunch voting block for Democrats in this period. Okay, so you put all that together, and that's a winning coalition. That's that's going to lead uh, Truman to win in nineteen forty eight, right? Mm-hmm. Dewey defeats Truman. That yeah. was in the bag for the Republicans. Why yeah. did Truman win? The New Deal coalition. Why does Kennedy win in sixty? Why does LBJ win in sixty four? This coalition has l- great staying power and helps define this last party system. Okay, is that why, is the New Deal Coalition why JFK and um, uh, and even LBJ in 64, uh, why they talk about the Democratic Party being the party of, they don't say this specifically, but the party of the little guy. Yes. Party, okay, you know, yes. it's, it's not going to be the party of the Wall Street financiers. Correct. It's, it's the, it, lots of different types of little guys, right. and, and little right. guys and little gals, but that they use little guys back in that day as a phrase. Um, but they are all, the thing that binds them together is they're all little. They're not right. rich. This happens early on under Roosevelt, where in uh-huh. terms of, because remember, parties back then also ran on money. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Roosevelt, especially in 1936, uh, openly cuts ties with business. And, yeah, that's and denies true. himself that spigot of money. And where does the money come from? Organized labor. Which because uh, AIM is allowed to organize and raise money, and you start to see the first PACs, the first political action committees, yeah. are, are CIO PAC. It's yeah. a, it's a big labor filling in that gap for money. So and, sure. and and it's not like there were no fat cats defending uh, sort of supporting Democrats. But if you compare the two parties, mm-hmm. yeah, the party has made a deliberate turn in a more populist direction, relying on the little people and quote unquote little people and representing them. Right. Absolutely right. true, Professor. This is so complicated in many ways. It's understandable that the the thing that people latch onto as a misunderstanding as a misnomer is the names. At this for the last hundred years in the period we're talking about, the names stay the same. The names stay the same, but what's going on beneath the labels changes a great deal in lots of ways that we don't have time to get into. Yeah. 
you can argue that the whole idea that you break it up into these distinct systems the last few decades is a sort of artificial. Oh, sure. sure, sure. In in any of those periods, there are changes going on and the parties are morphing. The parties are often uh, flipping positions. Yeah. You know, uh, in the late 19th century, the Republican Party was the party of protectionism and the Democrats were the party of free trade. Yeah. And then they switched. Uh, they switched places. And by the way, today it almost looks like they're switching places again, again on that issue. Right. Yeah. Um, the Democrats have the, have this stain of having KKK members in them. And, then, and then it's the party of civil rights. That's right. Yeah. Which it is today. Yeah. With a couple, only a couple of exceptions. Okay. And, and there are a lot of other issues, which we won't get into, where they also flip positions. Right. So it, it's really a historical to say, oh, this label means this now and for all time. It's a historical, right, yeah, a historical, yeah. right? In other words, that's uh, what you said, but it didn't quite okay. sound like that. <laughs> a, a historical what? Yes, um, it's historically not valid to say, <laughs> right? So, what are the things? Some of the, what are some things that have happened sort of recently that have sort of changed the picture? Uh, in our time, parties are a lot less powerful than they used to be. Well, yeah, okay, that's right. It's much harder to keep party uh, politicians and party members in line. And mm-hmm. It's much more like herding cats today. Yeah. Um, primaries are the be all and end all of selecting candidates. Yeah. Which was not the case. The smoke filled room. Yeah. It, I won't say it doesn't exist. You still have backroom deals being made, but not like the old type where major decisions where, where a candidate like Warren G. Harding is selected by a meeting by a bunch of guys sitting around a table, smoking cigars, literally, yeah. <laughs> right? That's literally how that went down. Now that is impossible. Conventions basically are now multi-day infomercials where they decide nothing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's, yeah. I mean, I'll stop I, watching them. Yeah. Uh, if I were president of a network, I would not televise them anymore. No, I I don't, uh, or I'd make the party pay me a lot of money. They can, they consider it that they, 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 they sort of do it because they're kind of forced to, to, to right. produce public, public, uh, no one wants to be the first one not to televise it. They're sort of civic education, well, but networks, the, right. it's like they, right. they, they play some civic education right, role. Right. And, and no, they're the basically, yeah. we, we, why should we, why should the networks be forced to televise a party among party no, no, activists, no, no. Yeah. right? Small the, people parties, the big people. Yeah. Yeah. It right. makes no sense. You don't have party bosses anymore. Yeah. You know, you don't have, you have no mayor daily like mm-hmm. you used to have. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, there, there were, if you look at what the political scientists say, there were some good things about the the discipline party structure and the ward bosses and that sort of thing. Oh yeah. You, you didn't get wacko candidates. Yeah. And, and other things too. Um, there were, it's not, in other words, you've replaced one bad system with another bad system <laughs> or <laughs> no, one flawed system with another flawed system. I'll put yeah. it that way. You have a lot of quotes, um, particularly from the pre, you know, 1980 or New Gingrich era. Republicans saying, look, the problem with Republicans in Congress right now is they're so used to being the minority party. They, they don't believe they're going to become the majority. So they just cooperate with Democratic chairman because their, their best possible outcome is congressional Democrats, like give them some crumbs, right? They give them a seat at the table. But that as soon as it becomes truly competitive and you can get, get back into power, your best strategy is not cooperating with the, the, the other party. It's, as you say, destroying the other party. And it seems to me that that what that means is that bipartisanship is fundamentally irrational, that in a zero-sum political context, 
where we have elections where one side can only one side can win and the other side will lose like by definition if the if the first side wins that the fundamental thing that our system often needs to govern well which is bipartisanship given all of our veto points that it's irrational it's actually like it's a it, you'd almost have to be crazy to do it under normal competitive conditions I mean, uh, those are the implications that uh, competition does undercut the incentives to 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 work across party lines. Now, I would say I think that incentive structure is more pronounced for the party that has less institutional power. Presidents can get some mileage out of triangulation, out of uh, you know reaching out to try to win bipartisan assent. Now, they need to do so in a way that would avoid alienating their own base voters. But if they are able to do so, um, then that gives them additional legitimacy. In other words, if they're able to get bipartisan support for what they want to do, that's a feather in their cap. So you'd expect more bipartisanship on the part of the party within power. But whether the out party, whether the party with less institutional power is willing to grant that, that's another question. And it's not it's not in their interest a lot of the time to work cooperatively because it undercuts their ability to make the case for their own return to power. And isn't that an, a very important part of the incentives as the minority party understands them? Something that it always seemed to me that Mitch McConnell understood well in the Obama era was it. Voters would blame the party in power for the absence of a governing bipartisan majority, but it was the party out of power that actually controlled the resource of bipartisanship. And when you have that kind of disjuncture between accountability and um, like a, a capability, you get the kind of outcomes we have here because whether or not people want bipartisanship, um, if the reality is that they're always going to blame the party in power for not getting it, then it's really, really a, like you would imagine that the, the binding constraint here is the, the minority party doesn't want to be blamed for being partisan and obstructionist. But if they if they don't get blamed for being partisan and obstructionist, because that's not how people think about this, they like just blame whoever holds the presidency for whatever is going on. Um, yeah, then why not obstruct everything all the time? I, I mean, I do think that there is that um, sort of knee jerk assumption that a lack of bipartisanship means that those with more power are not doing their part in reaching out or trying to accommodate. But, you know, it takes two to tango and we need to pay pay attention to the incentives of the uh, the party with less institutional power and whether um, they have their own reason not to participate, even if uh, good faith outreach is made. So this seems to me to get us to I, I both think like very rich and very tricky territory. And this is, I think, more than anything, like why so much why I've learned so much from your work and why I so badly wanted you on the show. I think both in your book Beyond Ideology and, and, and this newer book. You're taking aim at pretty fundamental assumptions that govern certainly how the media covers politics, but I, I think also like how a lot of voters understand politics. And the core one here seems to me to be that we can't have a competitive zero-sum election system grafted on to a system of governments that requires compromise to work 
and expect the thing to function. And that when it doesn't function, we tend to blame individuals. We say Barack Obama isn't reaching out enough or Mitch McConnell is being obstructionist or whatever it might be, depending on your, you know, which perspective you come at it from. And obviously I have my views about which of those is correct. Like I think Mitch McConnell was obstructionist, but I think we blame individuals without focusing really on the system. It seems to me, if you just listen to the media and voters, that they they would like Washington to work better. And by work better, they mean something like agree more and like come together more. But you can't get that by changing out the individuals. If the system like encourages this kind of behavior, then you're going to keep getting it no matter who you switch out. And so it seems to me there's this very big disconnect between the way we want the system to work and the way our system is actually set up to work. But I never see anybody like anybody with a plan for changing that. Well, I mean, the American political system has rock solid legitimacy with the broad American public. There's no belief out there that there's something systematically wrong with the structure of American government. So political leaders don't criticize it. They don't they don't think there'd be any purchase in doing so. And uh, very little by way of reform proposed at the systemic level, that it's just a widely held set of beliefs that if the system isn't working well, it's just the wrong people in it, as opposed to something systematically wrong with the with the uh, with the institutions. Add on that it has a long history. I mean, we you know the basic structure of American government has been in place now for more than two centuries, and so in light of that. We believe that it will, uh, you know, continue and it should continue and that you look back to landmark successes in American government and say, well, the system has functioned in the past. Why not now? It must be the wrong people. It's the, basically the same institution. It must therefore be the, the folks we've got in there now without instead thinking about how the system functions differently depending on political circumstances. And that the politics of the present moment are pretty toxic for bipartisanship, for compromise. And, and that that has a great deal to do with the intense, pervasive, knife's edge competition that uh, characterizes uh, the, the battle for institutional control. Do you buy the argument made by political sociologist, the late political sociologist Juan Linz, that the American political system, it basically shouldn't work, that a, a system where you have different branches being democratically elected and then going to war with each other with no way to, to resolve that, it shouldn't work. But it did in America because we had this weird, strange, aberrant political system where our parties weren't very ideologically polarized. So you had like conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans and you just you, you had a, a system where the ferocity of the competition was damped by the weirdness of the parties. But like now those parties have become polarized and they've become ideologically sorted. And so the fundamental contradictions of our political system are now coming to the fore. Certainly it looks like we're in the middle of one of those contests of legitimacy right now that uh, that Lynn's described, that you have in this government shutdown that's ongoing. You have a president citing his legitimacy out of the 2016 election that you know he was elected um, building a wall was a central campaign promise he, he must have it he has to be able to deliver on that and you have a democratic majority in the house of representatives uh, sent in 2018 in the midst of a campaign where 
uh, building the wall and the migrant caravan played a big role and yet they carried the majority. And so it's a contest right now of competing legitimacies. And, and they are at loggerheads in exactly the kind of way that, uh, Lynn's described, uh, would, would occur when you have cohesive parties that, uh, each hold control of competing institutions that under those circumstances, it's, you know, whose legitimacy should prevail. And yet, as the questions posed right now, both cannot prevail and neither is prepared to concede. The next question is from Leticia Sarrenzo. Uh, the framing theory. Is it always black and white? Is there no room for shades of gray between two ideas? Um, I've talked a lot, and we on these broadcasts have talked a lot, about what I've called biconceptualism. Uh, the idea, for example, that a moderate, uh, doesn't, there is no ide- ideology of the moderate that all moderates believe. A moderate conservative has some progressive principles. A moderate progressive has some conservative principles. And it's important to understand the neuroscience behind this, because progressive and conservative thought are contradictory. So how can you have contradictory modes of thought in the same brain? The answer is very simple, and it's there in, in basic neuroscience. There are circuitry, circuits called mutual inhibition. The activation of one turns the other off. Uh, this happens in every muscle in your body. You take your arm, your flexor muscle, uh, when that gets tensed and you make a muscle uh, in your uh, in your arm, the extensor underneath it gets gets relaxed. If you want to hit backwards and tense your flexor muscle, your extensor your extensor muscle, your flexor muscle has to relax. That is, mutual inhibition is happening not only in those muscles, but between every pair of muscles in your body. Every time you blink or uh, move your mouth or uh, shrug your shoulders. All of those things involve mutual inhibition circuitry. And that circuitry is in your brain as well. Now, this is very important because people who are biconceptual, who are mostly conservative but partly progressive, mostly progressive but partly conservative, uh, there's no middle. There's no gray area that is neutral between them. It's not a gray area. It is a divide between them, and that in certain issues, they're one, and in other issues, they're the other, but they are using different moral bases for those particular issues. They're shifting you know, uh, unconsciously from one to the other, just as every time you move your arm, you're shifting unconsciously between uh, whether you're flexing your flexor or, uh, or uh, relaxing your flexor. So these are the, the swing voters that everyone's always trying to reach. Is that who these people would be? And you're trying to activate the progressive part of their brain and understanding that on some issues they're going to be conservative. Is And so she's asking, is it all black and white? Is there any gray? Is it correct to, to, to describe the biconceptual thinking as that gray no, area? It is not gray. There is no ideology that's in between. There's no ideology that just fits all moderates. 
what you have in each case is uh, either a progressive or a conservative ideology, but applied to different issues and shifting back and forth. And most people are like this. Most people uh, have some parts of their lives. Most progressives are uh, conservative about some issues or other. Most conservatives uh, are progressive, that is, nurturant about some issues or other. We've talked about in-group nurturance, with, where people in conservative communities care about the people in the communities and act as if they were progressives, but just for the people in their communities. Is there something that you're conservative about? Absolutely. Uh, I was a professor for 50 years before I retired, and uh, I was conservative about uh, a, a very special thing. Uh, in conservatism, the idea is that your fate de- is determined by you. You are responsible for what happens to you. In, in, that, in conservatism, that's true of, for everything. But uh, in my teaching, I didn't apply it to everything. I applied it to one thing, your homework. Do your homework. You do your homework, you'll get a good grade. You don't do your homework, you won't. No in between. No in between. We didn't get, you know, the people who the people who didn't do their homework just didn't get good grades. Sometimes they complained. They thought they were just good people and should get good grades. But sorry, you didn't do that reading. You didn't do that homework. You didn't get good grades. Also, a really important development in recent years is what I will call our realignment. Oh, okay. Not over the slavery issue, but if you compare our system today and our two parties today with our party of, say, 20, 30 years ago, there's no comparison in terms of what the parties represent. Ah. Each party has become much more purely ideological. Okay. For a long, long time, uh, way back in the 19th century, the parties had wings. Mm Mm-hmm. You're going to, right? I mean, mo- most political systems represent a variety of views by having a multi party system. Yeah. We represent a variety of views with two parties. By definition, oh, you're going to have wings. Have. Okay. You yeah, can't yeah, yeah. represent all the views with just two parties. You have to have wings. Okay. And if you don't have wings, you're not going to survive. Moderates so, and extremists. Exactly. Yeah. Or you, so you have, so, you know, you have moderate Democrats, you have liberal Democrats, you have conservative Democrats. Mm-hmm. And the same thing for the Republicans. That is no longer the case. Southern Democrats leave their party for the GOP. Yeah. Liberal Republicans vanish. Yep, Rockefeller up, Republicans. Yeah, I grew up with people like Nelson Rockefeller or Lowell Weicker mm-hmm, or a lot mm-hmm. of these people who were not only Republicans who were liberal, but they were more liberal than some conservative Democrats were. In other words, yeah, the absolutely. two parties intersected if you measure or if you sort of judge politicians on their political views and stances. Liberal Republicans have basically vanished. Even so-called blue dog Democrats, the relatively conservative Democrats who was hanging on in the South right, right. have, have vanished. Calm. Yes, you have moderates and extremists within each party, but the the sort of length of political spectrum that they represent has shrunk mm-hmm. vastly, mm-hmm. and you have virtually no overlap between the two parties. Yeah, and you have a quote unquote liberal party and a quote unquote conservative party. Yeah, yeah. that 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 represents realignment, right? Oh, I see. I that, see. Okay, that and that uh, maybe that warrants a new party system. I could make a good argument for that. Mm-hmm. But that's the current reality, and that's not what it used to see. I mean, you used to have. Let's put it this way: the Democratic Party used to embrace at roughly the same time everyone from Bob LaFollette to Strom Thurmond. Bob LaFollette being the progressive 
a senator from Wisconsin, from Wisconsin uh, earlier in the 20th century, but who ran as a third party candidate in 1924. Super, super progressive. Yeah. Um, someone or someone like him who would have been a social Democrat in a European would, system. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Strom Thurmond would have been too conservative for most Republicans. Yeah, and yet they're, right. and they're in the same party. Yeah. Yeah. And same thing on the Republican side. The Republican Party in the same era encompasses both Nelson Rockefeller and Joe McCarthy. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. No, I mean, absolutely. They're insane. both Republicans. They're official members of the Republican yeah, Party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet, is there any intersection at all on the issues between those two people? Probably not. No, there might no. be a couple, but um, well, well, defense spending. Yeah, right? yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, something like that. I mean, <laughs> we're basically in the cold war. Everyone agrees, uh, with only a couple of exceptions. That you don't see anymore, and that has all sorts of ripple effects. It's one of the reasons why you have what we call partisan gridlock because the parties are more ideologically pure. You can't pick off someone from the other side to uh, to align with you on a particular vote because they don't exist. That person who sees uh, eyes to eyes, eye to eye with you on that issue, they don't exist in the other party. Would have, would have existed in the 40s and 50s. Right. And, and that, that itself has ripple effects. People are down on politicians and government because it seems like it can't do anything. Well, it can't do anything partly because of the nature of our party system and what it has become. Hmm. Well, what, what, what hasn't changed? What then? hasn't changed is the fact that we have a two-party system. Uh, uh, and that they have a virtual lock on the system for lots of reasons, including the Electoral College. Yeah, that's right. But... Um, let me put it this way, as looking at 2016, it is far more likely for an outsider to take over, quote unquote. 2016? Yeah, 2016. Where an outsider, but in the form oh, of Donald oh, Trump. Look at, okay, I see. Yeah, the election. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I'm sorry, the presidential election 2016. It's far more likely for something like that to happen. In other words, a, an outsider, a non-politician to take over, quote unquote, and we can debate about whether that's actually the case, but takes over one of the two oh, parties. I see. I think that's yeah. far more likely than um, a genuine third party threat to arise mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. also one of the two parties absorbing a third party's issue is much more likely than a third party arising ah. you've seen this on multiple occasions i remember uh 1992 yeah. when you had a serious third party threat in the and not by threat i mean threat to the two parties <laughs> it's not a national threat uh where ross perot runs and isn't independent yeah yeah he he remember i don't know if you remember him in his pie charts he was the one. <laughs> I remember he, the pie chart. He, he was the one who put the deficit on the national on the, agenda. Yeah, that's right. That's and right. And what do you know? In no time at all, people like Bill Clinton and Bob Dole are talking about the deficit. That's right. That's what happens because the two parties aren't stupid. Yeah. If there's if any issue they haven't been addressing gains traction with the third party, they will quickly make it their own and make that third party go away. And they'll make it sound as if they're more deficit exactly. hawks than the other the other major party. Right. And right. that that's the burden that any third party runs with. There are some other issues, too. For example, if you're elected president as an independent, the Congress is still dominated by the two parties. Well, yeah. Well, how you gonna... Then what? You run into what I call the Jesse Ventura problem. Yeah. Because remember, he was elected as an independent in Minnesota as yeah. governor. Yeah. And now he has to contend with the, with a legislature that has no independence in it. Right. Now right. what? Right? Those people feel no allegiance to you. You're an independent. Mm-hmm. Right? All these things that might work okay in a parliamentary system one way or another yeah. don't work in our system because it's not a parliamentary system. So the emergence of an actual third party uh, that is going to win national elections, I think, is highly unlikely for the foreseeable future. Now, I'm sure I'll be proven wrong in 2020, <laughs> but, uh, you know, because we're not supposed to make predictions. But it, we, are, I, we are looking at a firmly emplaced two-party system for the foreseeable future.
Eric asks, do you worry the excessive use of extreme language by some on the far left is lessening its overall impact? For example, the constant use of the word fascist. This is a tricky question for a number of reasons. There, You have an alternative, and if you say the alternative is authoritarian, it's not really enough, because authoritarian doesn't get at things like uh, sexism and racism and homophobia and those aspects of things. Uh, it doesn't get at uh, being uh, prejudiced against Muslims or, uh, you know, not letting immigrants in. Uh, authoritarian does get a lot of what the, is going on in the Trump administration. That is to have some absolute authority that's there, but it misses a point. Uh, fascism, fascism goes a bit overboard because in fascism, you also have, uh, that authoritarian government running the corporations, running the businesses. We don't have that here, uh, yet. Although there is, you know, collusion, that is, you have, uh, the government trying to, uh, work with businesses to get them to make more money and to get support from business. But the fact is, it's not fascist yet. So there isn't a simple term. What about the, the Nazism we do see proudly on display? I mean, you know, I think maybe Eric's referring to Antifa's approach, but I don't think Antifa really uh, represents most Democrats or progressives. It's a, it's a pretty small portion of that. But they're a reaction to these people who have taken to marching around with swastikas, with Hitler haircuts, with Confederate flags, uh, the people like the Richard Spencers of the world, people who give Nazi salutes, who use the word hail. Hailed Trump in one of Richard Spencer's speeches. So the right wing, the extreme right wing has been deliberately manipulating the symbols of Nazism and fascism to, and getting a rise out of the other side in that, in that way. That's, that's why this is a tricky issue. Yeah. Because, well, that is all true. Those elements of fascism are there. The more extreme parts where you uh, run all the companies Mm -hmm. is not there. Uh, Authoritarianism doesn't cover it. We don't have a word that just does it. But, you know, there's a reason with Antifa to say, hey, these these are fascist elements, crucial fascist elements, but not the total fascism. So the idea of using fascist uh, as a simplistic term isn't there, but there are contexts where, you know, it seems appropriate, just as you said, when you're, you're um, saying, oh, there are lots of good folks among those neo-Nazis. Mm-hmm. Well, in a way, thinking politically here, shouldn't we just do, be doing our best to ascribe all of these um, awful, ugly features of the current conservative ideology to the label Republican? This is really important. Um, the label Republican is seen as a, as a almost neutral label, you know, just as being a Democrat is, that is, it's respectable. Being a Republican is yeah, respectable. I, I know someone who moved to California, before she moved to California, uh, worked for um, Governor Pataki in New York, who was a Republican. And she said, look, Governor Pataki was a very respectable person. You know, Governor Pataki would never say the things that Trump said. He didn't do the most horrible things that Trump did. He was a Republican. He carried out largely Republican, uh, at least economic policies. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was perfectly respectable and is for most people to be a Republican. To say you're a Republican doesn't mean that you're a fascist. 
even though when you vote Republican, you vote for people who are supporting fascist tendencies. Now, this is very tricky because, uh, the, if you, if you say that someone is a, is a registered member of a party, that doesn't mean they agree with everything in the party. So that is what makes it respectable. On the other hand, when the only people you're able to vote for, that is when the Republican Party became super conservative under Newt Gingrich, uh, back in 1994, when, when the, um, moderate Republicans were, um, you know, voted out pretty much, uh, in the primary, Republican primaries, uh, what happened was that the, uh, respectable Republicans as candidates weren't there. You've got Republicans in office carrying out, uh, policies that look in many cases like fascist policies, uh, you know, not fully, but partly and that go even beyond authoritarianism. So this is a very tricky thing. We don't have good words for it. To say we're going to just call uh, everybody who believes in uh, the uh, strict father morality down to uh, being a white nationalist, a Republican, is missing the ordinary definition of Republican. Most people, when they say Republican, don't mean that. Well, do you think that's changing? Do you think that the brand damage that Donald Trump is doing to the Republican Party is something that is significant and shouldn't uh, the Republicans who are giving Trump a pass and aiding and abetting him in these efforts be held accountable for everything he does? I mean, it is politics where it's one party versus the other, right? Uh, what you have is an interesting situation where the Republicans are supporting ultra-conservative candidates. And uh, a lot of people don't want that to happen. Uh, you know, uh, as you saw in the uh, election of Connor Lamb versus Sacconi. Uh, that is important, uh, that uh, they had an ultra, re- an ultra conservative candidate and a Democrat who is not completely liberal by any means, who had certain conservative policy policies, who was biconceptual. And, um, and he was running in a district that had voted 20% for Trump. That was a very conservative district. Uh, those folks in that district are biconceptual in certain ways, but not liberal, not totally liberal by any means. And here is where you see biconceptualism showing up. They're for unions. They're for this. They're steel workers in that district for healthcare and for, for their neighbors. Health- and therefore, there is for unions and for health care and for decent wages and decent uh, working conditions and so on. And that mattered uh, and mattered a great deal. They were not, you know, for the steel companies. And uh, so this is, uh, you know, though, uh, you know, uh, Trump went there and say he was supporting the steel workers because he was supporting the steel companies. The people in the unions uh, understood that that was ridiculous. This is one of the opinions I hold that is very unpopular in liberal circles, but I think a lot about the Mitch McConnell-Merrick Garland affair and the anger that Mitch McConnell, who had the votes, right? And obviously, if he didn't have the votes, he wasn't going to be able to do that. But he had the votes. He, I think at that time, Republicans had 54, 55 seats in the Senate. And he did not want 
a liberal president, Barack Obama, to fill Antonin Scalia's Supreme Court seat. And what he did was unprecedented, and the way he justified it was clearly bullshit. But there's this question that the system itself raises, which is, what did he actually do wrong? Right. Aside from being a break with a lot of historical precedent for, for McConnell and Nakiv Garland to hearing, why should we expect an ideologically distinct coalition, a conservative coalition in this case, to clear a Democratic or left of center um, Supreme Court justice? I mean, we did in the past. It happened in the past. So that seems to be why we do it. But like if you if you backed out, it's not how we think other legislation is going to go. Right. Not how we expect Congress to act on other important matters of, of, of ideological consequence. And that's kind of space of legitimacy, which is, I think, an important word for you to bring into this conversation, seems really uh, significant to me. It, what McConnell did feels illegitimate in some ways, I think, was philosophically illegitimate, but it's clearly was like within his power in the system. And it's also clearly the incentives of the underlying system itself. And there's this increasing gap, it feels to me, between how we think American politics should work on a values level and how the rules are actually set up for it to work if both sides are maximizing their leverage and their their power and their ideological uh, purity. And as that gap grows wider, it's creating a legitimacy crisis. But in every individual case, the politicians in question can turn around and say, you, you gave me this power. Like, this is what the rules say. Like, I don't know what your problem is. Right. I mean, what McConnell did made all the sense in the world relative to the voters that elected the Republican majority to the Senate. That with um, with judicial nominations playing a central role in the campaign promises that Republicans make. But what his action does is it poses the question of how divided government can work. Because it's, it does, it's not limited only to the Supreme Court. That how can the president make his executive branch appointments? How can he run an executive branch if he cannot get his appointees confirmed? And yet a president facing a, a different party, another party in control of the Senate, that party doesn't want to confirm the sorts of people that the president would want. So our system relies to, to a great extent on a kind of forbearance that where even though the party in control of the Senate has the ability to deny the president appointments to the executive branch and to the judiciary, just doesn't go all out, exercises influence, but does not across the board withhold assent. So what Obama did under those circumstances is the sort of thing that presidents usually do is they try to take into account what sort of person would be acceptable to the, the opposing party in control of the Senate. And in choosing Merrick Garland, he chose someone who had a reputation for uh, moderation and centrism and uh, someone who was older and therefore wouldn't hold this, the, the Supreme Court seat for a long time. Those were openings that he overtures he made. But the fundamental problem was that potential control of the Supreme Court seemed to be in play and Republicans were not prepared to give uh, over Antonin Scalia's seat. And so the president was just told that this matter would be decided in the elections. And you know, if we carry this logic through, it raises the question of how divided government can function at all, even though, of course, divided government is our normal state of affairs in American politics. This seems to me to relate very directly back to your thesis, which is that 
competition makes both sides more ruthless. It makes both sides act to maximize their power as opposed to to exercise forbearance. I don't have proof of this, but I think that if what had happened um, in 20, I guess it was 2016 that, that uh, Scalia died, is that Ginsburg had retired. I think there is some possibility with there not really being a competition there for control of the court. It would have just been like the status quo as we had it that Garland could have gotten through. I can't say that for sure. I think there's also a chance McConnell does the same thing, but I think there's at the very least a a possibility of it. I think that in general, the two sides are much more open to the status quo on the court continuing than they are to things that could flip control or, or, or or flip um, further power towards one party or the other. And Similarly, in everything we're talking about here with the way uh, McConnell acted there, this kind of constant competition for control of of the Senate and the House seems really important. I I love the word forbearance here. It seems so important to me. You have this quote uh, from John Boehner in a 2006 letter to House Republicans where he says, and I believe this is a letter where he's actually running for, for the Republican leadership position. He says, what is the job of a Republican leader in the minority? It's to hold the job for as short a time as possible. And if you don't believe you're going to be able to get out of the minority, well, then maybe the job is to make sure Republicans have as much power as they can and to exercise forbearance and other things. But if you can get out of the minority, there's no time for forbearance. You have to get out of the minority. Like that is job one. And it seems to me a reasonable way of like saying the way Congress actually works in periods of competition is job one is winning your personal reelection. Two is winning the majority and governing is like somewhere lower. But it seems to me forbearance and competition are are in like almost perfect opposition. Yes, it just makes sense that if you think that after the next set of elections, you might be in power, why cut a deal now that you'll you'll have more power later? And so, you know, the pro- pervasive tendency in American politics to kick the can down the road on major issues, I think, owes something to this competitive context as well, where you can't get to a resolution of issues because the power struggle is still ongoing. That uh, elections really don't settle anything. The party that loses doesn't really think it's going to be out for very long. Hey, members, we have reached that magic moment again where everyone else is getting kicked all the way to the end of the show, whereas you have more bonus content to enjoy. So as always, thanks for your support. This is a bit more of a philosophical question, but there's a an often unexamined intuition in our system that bipartisanship is a good thing and that ideas that have bipartisanship behind them are good things. And I'm curious what you think of that, because it does seem to me that in like a conceptual party system, what you have is parties representing quite different ideas. And in another system, the party with power would just be able to put its ideas into play and then the party out of power could critique them. And that there's this kind of clarity in the choices. And in American politics, we seem to want parties that don't offer clear choices. We used to have that. So maybe that's part of why we like it. But is there any reason conceptually to think that putting aside the fact that our system requires bipartisanship to work, given its veto points in the filibuster and whatever else, is there any reason to think that bipartisanship actually makes systems work better, that it should be such a high value that we try to build it into the very functioning of our system versus simply saying, eh, bipartisanship is illogical. We want to have different views, like like let the parties be partisan and let whoever has power just govern. Well, I would say we, we can't fully set aside the fact that the system requires bipartisanship. 
that you know the system was not designed with parties in mind. Parties grew up within the system, but uh, when the framers put the constitutional system together, they did not plan for parties to play the kind of role that they play. So the complex division of power, bicameralism, separation of powers between Congress and the president that tends to require the parties to work together because it's so there's so many veto points. Almost any organized opposition can stop things from happening, much less organized partisan opposition. But in, at the uh, to, to try to make a normative case for bipartisanship on other grounds, I'd say we need to set it in the context of the American electorate, where both parties are minority parties, that neither party garners the trust of, of most Americans. And so under those circumstances, a party governing on narrow party lines is provoking huge backlash because there's the other party in the electorate. And then there's also a large share of voters who don't like or trust either party that well. They may not, uh, they may have a tendency to prefer one party over the other in their voting behavior, but they refuse to align themselves publicly with a party. Then they are suspicious of parties, period. That parties are partial. It's not the national interest. It's a partisan interest. That's how they're, that's how parties are seen. And so bipartisanship helps to, to, to transcend that legitimacy problem, the legitimacy problem that of effectively two major parties that are both minority parties. So I, I like that idea of them both being minority parties. I think that's important. And, and it relates to something I wanted to ask you. I'm very interested in the way political identity is expanding and strengthening in America. And you don't talk that much about political identity in the book. But I, I'm, I'm curious, uh, knowing the literature as you do, if you think this period of intense competition leads to changes in political identity or validation or reinforcement of political identity. I think uh, it it raises the salience of partisan identities. This intense, this period of intense competition. It's uh, you know rivalry tends to do that in all realms of life. Why not in politics as well? So yes, I do think it makes it makes that contest for power more visible for people. They think about parties more. There's so much more coverage of parties. In the lead up to congressional elections, for example, most of the news articles are about the prospects of change of party control of one institution or another. That's not how congressional elections were historically covered in the uh, in the news, that they used to be about individual races or about what was going on in different regions of the country because, of, of course, because of the party control was not in play, that the fact that it's in play means that the, the salience of which party wins is uh, is raised. And so there's so much more attention to that, which I think, you know, does play into rivalries and helps to cement people's commitments to the, their partisan identities, at least for those uh for those Americans who have a partisan identity. So another piece of this that I think is interesting. So I recently had a conversation, although I think it may come out after this one, with the neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky, who studies stress and, and, and the way anxiety affects um, primate and, and, and human brains. And he talks about how when studying primates, if you're in a period where the hierarchies are unstable, it changes like who feels stress. All of a sudden, 
people in power and dominant people feel a lot of stress and anxiety and stress and anxiety, it reduces short-term planning and it can make you angrier and it has all these sort of bad downstream mental effects. And it really made me think a lot about your book, which is that for a long time, another way of almost saying what you're saying to get it out of the competition language is that America had very stable political hierarchies. People knew what their, the parties knew what their places were more or less. And so they could kind of relax into it and plan on longer time horizons and act more calmly and had a little bit more space in which to interact with the other party and figure out what they wanted to do. But now they don't. The like the political hierarchy is constantly unstable and constantly changing. And so everybody feels that like that stress of volatility all of the time with all the things that, that stress and threat due to due to the human mind. I'm I'm curious if you think that's true. Your your book focuses a lot on institutional behavior, but obviously to some degree institutional behavior is built out of the behavior of individuals and you've spoke to a lot of individuals for the project. Do you think that this changes sort of how individuals see themselves and each other and just like the daily like level of cortisol in their bloodstream to constantly be in this war for control? That's a super interesting idea. Uh, you know, I, I, I wrote that book. It's published on an academic press. Uh, and uh, I stuck within my area of expertise as a political scientist. So I wrote about institutions and uh, incentives. But the psychology that you're pointing to makes a great deal of sense to me and suggests that I need to spend a little time taking into account this broader context in which struggle for power uh, shapes uh, emotions and psychology and identity and and things that you know go a little bit outside of what we normally uh, deal with as institutionally focused uh, political scientists. The the one that I think about a lot is planning. It seems to me that the kind of time horizon on which you can plan is really important. And one, we know that stress like acts on the human brain such that you have less working memory and you know deferring gratification now to get something later becomes much harder. But just if you have no idea what politics is going to look like in four or six years. It creates, it seems to me, this inability to defer something now for later, this inability to say, yeah, maybe we're not going to win this one without doing something really awful, like, say, the Merrick Garland situation. But, you know, it's worth it. Like, whoa, like the, the, the system is important, right? Like the ability to treat something um, as you're playing for 20 or 50 year posterity versus the ability to treat it like what you do now is the only thing that matters. You hear this in business a lot with like the the focus on like quarterly earnings reports. But it, it seems to me to be true in, in politics, too, that, you know, we, we talk about competition and the way the parties are acting against each other. But just something happening there as well is that they can't they can't plan like everything is about the next election and that just raises the stakes of everything that that kind of willingness to let the other party win or accept something not going the way you wanted it to now it's like you can't do that you got to shut down the government you got to threaten the debt ceiling you got to like you know not even give Merrick Garland a hearing like you can't have any weakness because there's no you're not you're not playing for the long term and so you don't care about the long term of the system like you're playing for right now and to be in power next year yeah, so that, that's looking at the you know the insecurity that those in power continually experience. I mean, they're they're hanging on by their fingernails. You know, they do not have secure institutional control, and so this does make it hard to think about what you're going to do down the road. It's just a matter of surviving in power, and so that constant preoccupation with the power struggle. That I think is something political scientists and you know those of us who think about you know uh, 
you know, how elections are supposed to work in democratic politics haven't taken uh, sufficient account of. Just that, you know, we, we tend to celebrate electoral competition as a way to provide accountability and, uh, you know, to incentivize politicians to consider the effects of what they do because they'll be held accountable. But the downside is that when you have this constant intense competition is that politicians are continually preoccupied with politics, with their stakes, with their ability to hold on to power, with ha- with messaging, with um, with their image, as opposed to being able to think about, you know, what they actually want to do with power. So I want to talk about, um, we've been talking, I think, primarily here about Congress. I want to talk about the presidency and in this case, President Trump for a couple of minutes. So I think that something something I learned from your book, Beyond Ideology, is that we have some wrong ideas about how presidential power works and particularly how it probably works in periods of divided government, that the opposition party becomes more likely to oppose anything the president takes a position on because the president is a leader of the party they're, they're in conflict with. And that seems like a hard thing, even for presidents who are used to trying to appeal to the other side, like uh, George W. Bush or Barack Obama uh, in different ways in their careers. Um, I, that's something like even they, I think, have trouble with. They feel that to get something done and divide a government, they should go out and give speeches and, and raise the salience of it. But Donald Trump really seems to feel that way. Like he really does not seem to me to have a mode that is not rallying his own side. And it strikes me, at least if you think about uh, if you believe that part of the job of the president is to get his agenda passed into law or as much of it as possible, that Donald Trump is almost uniquely unsuited for a period of divided government, that he almost has like nothing in the toolbox for what do you do when you taking a position makes it less likely that your idea can get through Congress. I'm curious how you think about Donald Trump in a beyond ideology framework. Well, I do think you've seen the kind of dynamics described in beyond ideology playing out in the Trump years, even though I, I agree with you that that I, I, I don't think uh, President Trump has been focused particularly on winning over fence setters or uh, opponents to his position. But even with that said, you see exactly the kind of polarization of opinion on issues which the, with which the president is associated, where the, the out party, the party that, that the president doesn't control, in this case, the Democrats move their issue positions, change in reaction to presidential leadership and change in contrary ways. That it is the case that uh, a public opinion among Democrats used to be more favorable towards um, a border wall or border barriers than it is now. Basically, you know, that public opinion on that among Democrats shifted very hard against uh, against border barriers after Trump entered the presidential race. So he, certainly as a president, there's no Democratic support for that. But there used to be a more openness to that idea when it was the last party, when it was not part of a party program. You also see Democrats shifting their position and becoming somewhat more favorable towards troops abroad, foreign intervention, more favorable towards uh, troop presidents in Syria than they were. Uh, So you see Democrats reacting against. Now, you also see the same sort of pattern where the president is able to lead his own party, even though he can't lead the uh, the opposing party. So you see change in uh, uh, opinion among Republicans on issues like free trade 
or attitudes towards uh, international alliances or towards uh, um, uh, Russian President Putin that you see, you know, Republican attitudes shifting in those ways uh, to align better with the president who they support. But that polarization in a system that requires bipartisanship to function most of the time, in fact, even in unified government, bipartisanship is necessary because of the filibuster in the Senate. That polarization makes a president's job more difficult that when they take a position that it tends to alienate the, um, the, the opposing party. We've just heard clips today, starting with Professor Buzzkill in two parts discussing the history of America's political parties and how we got to now. The Ezra Klein Show in two parts discussed the structural nature of the problems with congressional gridlock, and the Frame Lab podcast featuring Professor George Lakoff explained how partisanship meets policy in the minds of individuals, why moderation is folly, and how to reframe progressive arguments to reach new supporters. So that's what everyone heard, and then members also got a bonus clip from Ezra Klein continuing their discussion about the dynamics of hyperpartisanship and the effects it has on society. For non-members, that bonus clip is linked in the show notes and is part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find it. But if you want to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show now, especially in our time of need, at bestofleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Jay, hey man, and, uh, and bless you and your people. My name is Zeke, Z-E-K-E, and I, I'm out of Steamboat Springs, Colorado. I just lost all the venison that I harvested this fall to a FedEx UPS mishap, you know, and uh, things weren't going so good. And I got home and I saw your recent episode, man, and I, I decided to drop you a, a little bit of money. I hope it helps. It came through. The payment went through. So... You know, it's what I've got right now, and uh, it's, it's for you and your people to keep doing what you do because you're a force for good, man, and, and, and the world needs you. I just thought, you know, I would share my misery with you uh, because for some reason you felt like the right person to call, and uh, I, I just truly hope that everything's going well with you. Um, that I was able to share with you, even though I'm not able to share what I was hoping to share with the people around me who really were hoping to, to have it, which is food on the plate, you know, which... Um, I think it's the big point of all of this that that we're working toward together is it, moments of mutual aid and, and suffering and solidarity together. So in faith, brother. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Eric from Portland or another Dave from Olympia, if you like. I've lived through different experiences that have certainly showed me that the system we're living in doesn't reward some of the most important of work. And considering how the year has been and the kind of people we've lost, like Michael Brooks, I'm not ready for you to get shut down. 
So because I'm fortunate, because economic winds have changed for me and there's really no justice in it going either way for how bad it used to be or for how good it is now, the least I can do is share that with you in this time of need. I'm leaving this message because I'm hoping that if there's others like me out there that are doing well and that know what it's like to not do well, either from experience or just from having empathy and observation, that maybe they can do the same thing. And, you know, it couldn't hurt to have a few more dudes from Olympia out there to help you out. Here's the best for you, Jay, and I just hope you can do everything possible to make it through this. Take care. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks very much to the two callers that we heard from today for their support and all their kind words. Thanks, of course, to everyone who's been stepping up right now. I said previously in a previous episode, that we had recouped about 250 members worth of monthly and annual pledges. And the fact is, I did my math a a little wrong. I miscalculated and ended up getting ahead of myself. So since memberships have continued to flow in over the past few days, now we're just about at 250. So I, I got ahead of myself, but the members caught up. So now they've made me be accurate. So it sounds like we haven't made progress since the last episode, but we have. I just misstated it. Uh, I also want to point out that we do accept one-time donations. A listener wrote in saying that we should have that as an option. So I clearly don't talk about it enough. So if anyone can't commit to a membership or just doesn't want to for whatever reason or wants to make a really generous donation, but just on a one-time basis, we have you covered. There is a one-time donation option listed on our support page right alongside memberships and gift memberships. And now, since we know that it's hard to see or really understand all the work and the money that goes into this show, I mean, I you probably assume, I don't know, it's a lot, but you know, you don't really know what's going on. So we wanted to give you a little glimpse into some of our expenses. Amanda wrote up this list. She just started listing things like, oh my God, I can't believe how much stuff we have to do and how many things we have to pay for. So we, you know, she wrote it all down and, uh, and here's, here's the quick breakdown. And frankly, I, I kind of think we're missing a few things, but, uh, but I just can't think of them at the moment. So right up front, obviously podcast hosting costs, you know, we do the host, the actual audio files that get downloaded, the analytics that we need to give to advertisers, all of that costs money. And you may be asking yourself, hey, aren't there free hosting options? Yes, there are, but don't bother recommending them to me. You really get what you pay for. I would rather be either the customer rather than the product, or I would rather stick with my current hosting company, which values your privacy as a listener and doesn't want to use every single trick in the book to mine your data to help make me and themselves money. So I just pay a service fee for that. 
We have a separate website hosting service. So that includes communication tools like our email blasts. That's where we host all the show notes and our transcriptions. It helps drive uh, you know, search engine op- optimization for the show. We have two part-time assistant producers who do a huge chunk of the research, Aaron and Dion. So they sort through dozens of hours of content for every single episode that we produce. And them doing it means that I don't have to do it. So that helps me not burn out and let me focus on other things. Plus, having more people do the research means that we have diversified our curation lens, so to say. And then, of course, we have a part-time activism czar, social media manager, graphic designer, occasional co-host, the amazing Amanda, who just does everything that needs to be done that I don't have time for. And uh, she just happened to have this uh, uh, particular set of skills that she could bring to the task. We just paid a huge chunk of money right before <laughs> right before we lost our funding. We paid this huge chunk of money for the specialized artificial intelligence transcription software that allows us to provide complete transcripts of our long, super complex, mini-voiced episodes. And that allows me to work in collaboration with our monosyllabic transcriptionist trio of volunteers, Ben, Dan, and Ken, to help put the finishing touches on. But the the transcription software that does sort of the bulk of that work is a pretty penny. So we we just paid a, a bunch of money for that for the sake of having transcripts. And that is the same software that enables us to do our voicemails for those either not comfortable or unable to leave a typical voicemail so that we can hear from more voices on the show. So we're really excited about that software and happy to be using it, but that definitely costs money. We subscribe to a license of a giant library of music so that we can use that legally on the show. You know, and then you get into the waters of like subscriptions to so many little tools and digital services that it's too many to list, but they all get used all the time and sort of come together to help make the show what it is and make it sound great and and have the widest variety of sources and all of those things. Like you just wouldn't believe how many little tools it takes that I've pieced together bit by bit over the years to make the show work. And then last, and hopefully not least, I need to make a living. (laughs) And so after all of those expenses, I just keep whatever's left over. And, uh, and right now that is nothing. Um, no, that's not true. It's, it's that what is left over is no longer enough to cover my expenses as a human living in the world. Before we lost that funding, I could cover my normal expenses and was doing sort of okay, and now I'm not. So, now you have a sense of what goes into the show and why we need members and have to harp on this all the time. And then in a, you know, a moment like this, it makes things pretty urgent because there's just a lot of balls in the air. So now the last thing, totally aside from funding the show, just want to reiterate what I think is one of the more exciting new features that we're introducing, which are, which is our referral program, because 
A lot of the problems we have would be solved if we just had more listeners, and the best way to get more listeners is for you, our adoring supporters, to share the show with the people who you think would uh, would appreciate it. And so we've implemented a referral program to make that fun and incentivize you a little bit by giving you rewards for sharing the show. So right now I have a, another slate of people to thank for having made their first referrals. Travis H., Alan from Connecticut, which no one is surprised about, Gretchen G., Bob W., and Raynette Gabrielle. Uh, huge thanks to the five of you for getting started with the referral program. And I don't want anyone to f- forget about the reward for referring just five new listeners. It's something you cannot get anywhere else for any price. The custom artwork designed in collaboration between myself and Amanda just talk about another thing we spent a whole lot of time on in this last couple of weeks as we've been ramping up these projects. We made some what I think is really great artwork that goes on your phone or tablet, and we think you're going to love them and want to be able to share them with you. And so you get access to that as soon as you uh, refer your fifth new listener to the show. And of course, links to membership and merch and the referralmatic and all of that are in the show notes. The one-time donations, of course, can be made right on the same uh, membership page. So that's the update I have for you. Instead of just asking for money again, I wanted to give you some, some background information. So hopefully that was informative and enjoyable. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio Ben, Dan, and Ken for their volunteer work helping to put our transcripts together. And thanks, of course, to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets activism segments, graphic design, webmaster, occasional bonus show co-host, and thanks to all those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com slash support. That is absolutely how the program survives. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.